So let's, uh, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I come before you and, uh, Lord, I'm tired. It was a busy night last night and got just not as much sleep as I probably would like, but God, just as Paul said, as you told Paul, when I am weak, you're strong, for your strength is made perfect in weakness. And so we pray for your perfection tonight, Lord, for what you want for our body, for our men, Lord. We pray that your name is praised, Father, that we get to know you and understand you more, to walk in faith, trusting you more, surrendering that which you want each of us to surrender, because you do call us to surrender every day, to die to ourselves, to take up the cross that we're called to bear. And we think the cross means like we see Jesus with a figure, maybe just the cross beam as Jesus actually carried. Which still weighed like 70 pounds at least, Lord. And so it's too much for us in our own strength. But as we surrender to you, God, you're faithful. You're faithful to complete your good work. And I pray that your word will go forth. It won't be with void, Father. It will reap a harvest. We pray that you get every bit of the glory you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, well, guys, guys welcome, welcome back. back. We're, We're starting back with our Wednesday night Bible studies. We completed First Thessalonians before Christmas, and we've had a few different things going on, and now we're going on to Second Thessalonians. And then from Second Thessalonians, to give you a little bit of a preview, we're going to be doing First and Second Peter. Not to say we won't have some interruptions on occasion to be prepared for the biblical counseling when we'll be dealing with First Peter and <clears throat> this is a timely message. It's timely because it's preparing us. God wants us to be aware of what is going on. We need to be attuned to where the Spirit's moving. So the backdrop. Uh, Thessalonians, for those who don't remember, this is a city in northern Greece, the Macedonian area of Greece, about 100 miles south of Philippi. Um, it was known for its hot springs, named after um, Alexander's um, half-sister. And so um, it's now called, I don't even know if it's really called Thessalonica, Thessaloniki, or Salonica, there are different names for it. It was a major port, a major thoroughfare, with a major Roman road called the Via Ignatia. Uh, via meaning road. And uh, Paul was there just for a short time, for about three weeks. And then he left to go down to the southern part of Greece. We think he was in Corinth. And he wrote these letters. Um, he's, he wasn't able to go back. He sent Timothy to kind of check on them. And we think First and Thessalonians were written right after each other. Some say a little later. Many scholars believe that these were one of the first words actually penned by Paul. Some say Galatians, some say this. Okay. So let you know this is very early on on Paul's missionary walk. And for some reason, 
Well, it's no surprise, but it's important for us. You think when he's talking about the end times, which is what he's going to talk about, that this would be a mature concept, that you need to get your fundamentals down before you really get into it. And there's truth. We, we need to know our fundamentals. But the point that Paul's talking about is we need to be ready. And we need to have our eyes focused on what God wants us to keep our eyes focused on, which is on the eternal, not on the temporal. Every day we're confronted with the temporal. Our physical needs to sleep, to eat, okay, to breathe. Everything that we do, we notice every breath that we take. We notice every pain that we have. We notice every bit of discomfort our body goes through. These are temporal things. We go to work, we get ready, we go to work, we work a job. These are temporal things. And they're not unimportant. They are not unimportant. But they are secondary. And what he's trying to let us know is what is the most important. Where do we need to have our priority? Where do we need to have our focus? So let's begin with the first couple of verses in Second Thessalonians. He greets them, he says, Paul, Silvanus, also called Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I've talked to you before about Silvanus is the other word for Silas, Silas being the Greek, Silvanus in the Latin, okay, or Roman, and um, he's, as always, Paul gives credit to who's there with him. Okay? He sees the work as a partnership. He's not a glory hound. He's not trying to get the acknowledgement for himself. But he's also recognizing the church at that time. And again, at the beginning of the ministry, the church was both Jewish believers and Gentile believers. So you who come to faith, that's the Gentile. Okay? And so he greets them with grace, charis, grace. Okay? Which is fundamental. Grace. It's what God, we use that as an acronym for God's riches at Christ's expense. But grace is what God has gifted us. It's a gift from God. And by God's grace, we get shalom, peace which is his greeting to the Jewish believers at the church as well. So he's acknowledging both things. He's a, his appeal is to both the Gentile and the Jewish believers. Okay? This is a message that he's writing not so much to the unsaved, but to those who profess belief in Jesus Christ. So that means this is a message for us as well. This is a message for us. Okay. Um, so, I want to talk a little bit more about peace. Peace, as I just mentioned, is the greeting that people say, that Jews say to one another, shalom. Frankly, it's also the term that Muslims say as well, salam, like salam alaikum, okay? That means the peace of Allah. That's what that means. But basically, peace is used. It's peace. It's a greeting that they do. But the peace that we're talking about is going to be different. The peace that Paul's talking about is the peace that comes through the grace of God. 
the peace that comes only with an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay? Oh, I'm just hearing a little bit of reverb there. Okay. Thank you. So the peace that comes with that relationship. And so peace, we know, is one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? Galatians 5.22, right? Love, joy, peace. Okay? So it's the fourth one named in the list of nine. Okay? But also in Ephesians chapter 6, when we talk about the armor of God, we're shard, we're, our feet are shod or placed on with the feet for the gospel of peace. Now, it's kind of an oxymoron to say that a gospel of peace because at times Jesus talks about that what he did is it comes as a sword to divide husbands and wives, even children from their parents. And yet, it brings peace. Because the division, the reason to understand what he's talking about is this world has no peace. It is under the dominion of the prince of this world. It's under the enemy. So nobody, and you meet people, and they talk about all these different things they try to do to have peace and all these centering meditation, and that's where I came from, that New Age background, to try to get peace, and there was no peace. There is no peace. They keep fighting for a peace that can't be realized in the world because the enemy, the adversary, only creates discord, dissension, Depression, discouragement, there is no peace. Okay, so when Jesus comes, and what he's talking about when he comes, he's actually coming to bring peace. He's actually coming to bring peace to this world. And the crazy thing that we don't understand is the wrath of God is a tool of his peace. He's going to reconcile. To reconcile with somebody is to make peace with them. He's going to reconcile himself with his creation completely and wholly. Jesus came to start that reconciliation and until the time is nigh, until the time comes through. And then when the time comes, when the second coming, there will be reconciliation, complete reconciliation. All accounts will be taken care of, and there will be peace. There will be peace. So, uh, I'm just going to, before I move to the next few verses, there's a small side here. It says, repeatedly he says, to God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he mentions that twice. And this is one of the things that's always been a problem for those or part of the heresies within the church. Started with Arianism back in the first few centuries afterwards, but even up to the present, that Jesus was not equal to God. That Jesus was a created being. Jehovah's Witness believe that he is the archangel Michael. Okay? Repeatedly, when you read the scriptures and you read the word of God, it's very clear Paul sees him as co-equal to God. Because he is. Of the same substance, 
as God, but different persons. Okay? And that's where the Nicene Creed came through, and that's when you talk about Orthodox Christianity, what we believe. We believe that Jesus is completely and wholly God. His role was, is different, but not his essence of being. Okay, and Paul, this is, when I mentioned earlier that Thessalonians was written at the very beginning of his, of his ministry, or certainly at the beginning of his writings of the epistles, this was already well developed at the beginning. This idea wasn't something that was later developed or created, okay? This was known and believed from the beginning. Let's move on to the next couple of verses. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of everyone of you all abounds towards each other so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. So there's a lot there. If you read up the different translations, um, New Living says your faith may abound more and more, or faith may overflow, go in excess. That's what exceed means, goes above and beyond. Okay? And so what he does here, and he mentions very closely, both faith and love, they're intimately connected. We cannot love others without faith. We can't do it. There's nothing within us that gives real love. It's selfish motivated. It's what is it going to mean for me? I'll love you because I know you're going to give me back this in return. Or I'm counting on it. And if I don't, well, then you haven't made, held up to your side of the bargain. That's how the world operates. Okay? That's not how Christ operated. Why did he have that? Why was his love so great for us? That he gave himself for us. What did he have to get out of it? I mean, honestly, he's with the Holy Spirit and with God the Father in heaven in perfect harmony and unity for all eternity. Didn't seem like a very good deal for him. We had a debt we couldn't pay. He had no debt, but paid it all for us. So, at the beginning of this verse, he says, we are bound. When you get, when we apprehend, when we take hold of what this gospel means for us, when it sinks down deep in us, you can't help it. You can't help talking about it. You can't help sharing about it. You can't help relating to others how important it is. It's not something that you can keep stuff down. It's not something you to suppress. You know, a lot of churches get together and they have meetings about how we need to evangelize and all these programs, tools, and um, teachings about what to do to share the gospel. Fundamental problem is, really, it's not a technique. It's not that at all. It's a relationship, and it's a faith and a belief. If you truly believe, you can't help but share it. You can't help it. 
You've got to. Okay? You see a, a parent with their kid when they get a newborn child, they can't help but share about that child with everybody. Here, you see my picture of my kid. I mean, I see that all the time. Moms are talking about that. Oh, my kid did this great and got on the honor roll. And they're talking about their kids on over, even if you really don't want to hear about it. You can't help it. That's what Paul's saying. We are bound to thank God. Okay? And he's bound to thank God not only for the relationship that he has, but because he has that faith, that love, he's bound to thank God for them. We're thankful for the ones that we have biologically. I'm thankful for your child. But when you have this faith, we're thankful for one another. So when one person prospers in the Lord or grows in the Lord, we're thankful. When we see somebody who shows up here, like, you know, Ken's here, wonderful. I'm thankful. Thankful. Thankful that we have a God who's that good. Thankful that we're in this place that we have a chance to sing at the top of the voices. I go, I can praise God and I have my brothers and sisters giving God the praise that he's due. I am thankful. A moment the thought crossed my mind, I'm tired, my voice is hoarse, I was coughing for about an hour before I came to service tonight. I was thinking maybe I need to get lozenges and all those thoughts that you think about. Maybe I should conserve my voice and not sing. And then Josh comes up to me and says, you know, not that I can sing very well, but I will sing loud. I will sing loud. I can't, I did that at Pure Life, I did in the sense I'm gonna sing to give a cheerful noise because I am grateful to God. And I get to sing in community together and I'm thankful. I am thankful for that. And because of that, we are bound, we're bound with that thanks. And that's the same thanks that the Lord wants for us. Okay, I'm going to talk a little bit more and I'm going to come back to a point because I'll come back to it, but I want to move on to the next few verses. And I'm going to bring this back into play a little later to tie it together. So moving to 2 Thessalonians verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 5 and 7. Which is manifest evident, evidence? Which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God? And listen to this that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. There's a lot that's packed into those verses. Okay? There's a lot that's packed into those verses. Pull up 1 Peter 4, 17. You got that for me? There you go. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and for it begins with us first. What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So, 
God is pure and holy. We should be saying that. You're holy. Holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. We're unclean. We can't even enter in the presence. Isaiah couldn't until the coal God basically took away his sin. We talk about how friendly we have a friend in Jesus. We also have a holy, holy God and a God who's perfect and righteous. And he will judge. He will judge us first. Judge the faith, the sheep and goat judgment. He will judge the sheep and the goats. We all will be held account before God. Okay? Now, I have a ch- I've been to Corinth and was at the... Um, they talk about the Bema seat and talk about that. It is a judgment in that sense of like a judge like we have in our Western courts, but a judge in the sense of affiliation, whether you have allegiance to. Okay, so in front of that Bema seat, you're basically going to go, who have you been loyal to? Why should you be before here? Okay, and so God is going to judge us. Not to have you be condemned and not to have you think, oh, if I do wrong and God's going to judge me, he's going to put his hammer on me. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying he does know and evaluates our thought process, but he's doing it in a way because he wants to reconcile us and give peace. Everything that we talked about before connects with this verse. They're not separate ideas. It's not like Paul is suddenly changing his focus. It's all connected based on faith and love. God doesn't change. It's not like there's the sweet God with Jesus and the angry God the Father. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is good in all his ways. He's going to be righteous and he's going to give an account. And what Paul is talking about is he's going to look at our motivations and he's going to be like a father, honest with us. You did this with the right motivation, you did this not so right motivation. But also, he's going to take account of the sufferings that we've gone through. And he's going to deal with it. He's going to remember. He's going to remember the martyrs who went through and died in the Roman Colosseum. How they were unjustly accused. Remember those who were unjustly accused and burned in fires and burned at the stake or hung or crucified. He's going to remember that. Those who suffer for his name, he will hold account. There will be consequences. He will reconcile all balances and accounts. Turn with me to Luke chapter 21, verses 7, and we'll read on to verse 36. So Jesus is talking. And this is what he says. He says, they being the disciples, asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be, and what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And he said, Take heed that you not be deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time has drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. For when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified. For these things must come to pass first. But the end will not come immediately. 
Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, and it will be turned out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all. You will be hated by all for my namesake. But not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience, possess your souls. By your patience, possess your souls. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, yet those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles, by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and the stars, and the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. Men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads. Because your redemption draws near. Then Jesus talks about the parable of the fig. And he says, then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourself that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. I surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And this is the last part that I really want you to pay attention. He says, but take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. That day come upon you, and that day come upon you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the earth, of the whole earth. Watch therefore, Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy 
to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So that's a whole lot there. And we could talk for the whole time, time just on all those verses. I wanted to give you the backdrop so I understand what Jesus is talking about. But the whole process is, and the same thing that he's talking about here in Thessalonians, is there will be judgment, we'll have to give an account, and we're to be prepared. To pair to count, be count worthy. So how are we to be counted worthy? The obvious answer that we all know is, okay, you have to have a relationship with Jesus. That is true, but it's incomplete. You have to have a relationship with Jesus. You have to have the atoning faith, you have to have that. You have to be born again. But what he's talking about, even here, even more so, is that we, the only way that the faith is real is when it's something that perseveres under trial. Otherwise, you're just a fair-weather believer. You're, if you look at something that sprouts out of the ground, you may see it if you garden or do any kind of planting, and you think, oh, it's going to be fine. The ground, if it's really rocky, doesn't get good roots. Right? So when it's really sunny, when there's trial, it dies. Or if there are too many weeds around that, it chokes out, doesn't get the light that it needs to grow and flourish. And so Jesus used the parable of the soils to indicate the only one who's really saved is the parable of the good soil that yields a crop 30, 60, 100 fold. One is dead. We can tell people who don't hear the message, the hard path with the birds have taken the seed. But the other two, there's something that comes out of the ground. It looks like life. There was a moment. Life. One couldn't weather the heat and dried out and died. The other one, the cares of the world, choked out the weeds, choked it out. Neither one of those thorny or rocky soils are saving faith. It's not saving faith. It's not real life. It's not what he's talking about. So, yes, there has to be the seed in the ground, and yes, there has to be growth, but it has to be solid. It has to be something that perseveres, that bears through trial. So to count ourselves worthy is somebody who's not just come before the altar one time and saying, hey, that's it, I'm good now. It's somebody in the evidence of their life is a continual walk with the Lord. Not to say you don't stumble. Not to say that you don't fall. Not to say that you don't have backslid. I certainly have. Certainly inwardly, if not always outwardly. But ultimately, what Jesus is looking for are those who persevere, who stay. Not just they come to church, but persevere with their ongoing daily walk with Jesus. You can't say if you don't talk with them for a year that you really have a relationship with them. It doesn't work that way. He wants you to, I mean, if you're with somebody, if you're, if you're living in a house and you're married with your spouse, you know, if they're away, sometimes you may not talk to them for a day, especially if they're overseas or that. But really, you're talking with them shocks virtually every day. I don't know any spouse who doesn't talk with their spouse virtually every, every day and doesn't think they have a relationship. 
Same with your family or if you're living with other people. You're communicating. And Jesus wants a minimum of that. That's just the beginning. But more than that, he wants a vital relationship. So it's not just what we're singing. It's part of it, but it's also obeying his commandments. It's integral. It's, it's really a test to see the faith is true. It's where the rubber meets the road. It's walking in trust and faith that he's that good, that we believe everything that he says that he's that good, and we can't help but talk about it. Guys who are suddenly in love with somebody and they find somebody, you're just talking about it all the time. They're on your mind, you're on your thought, and you're writing little notes and messages and doing all those things. Because your whole mind, heart, everything else is completely entranced in that relationship. And for some of us, we may have had those parts at the very beginning when we came to, to the Lord. Jesus is saying he deserved that all the time. Because you know what? That's how he is to us. That's how he is to us. That's how he is to us. And we have a hard time understanding that. Even God the Father is boasting about Job. He says, Satan comes around and he says, look, have you seen Job? He's boasting about Job. He loved Job. And you may not look at him when you read that and you're going, look what Job went through. It is actually out of love. He was reconciling Job, giving him peace. A true peace. Because before that, there was a, a theme of self-righteousness within Job. He was doing these things just in case his... And so there was this little bit of anxiety and worry that he was not settled where things are with the Lord. Maybe my kids have sinned, so I'm going to do the sacrifice. And God the Father wanted him to understand that your peace is based on that relationship with me and what I've done for you. And your gratitude, not on your worth. And he got that. And it was a process. It took time. You look through it and you read it. it did, this didn't happen in a day. Many months. Maybe years. Yes. Okay. And it was an intense trial. Intense trial to lose everything and then lose your health. Where your own wife says, curse God and die. And he did not. His words are, though he may slay me, still I will put my faith in him. Because he knew to the core of his being that God was good. Job did not deny that God was good. He just had a little bit too much confidence in his own self-worth. And that's the challenge with us. It's with me. How highly I think of my own thoughts. How highly I think of my own work, of the things that I do that I think I can earn myself into God's graces or to keep myself in through what I do. It's not about that. It's not about my effort and work in that regard. I'm doing those things not because it earns me anything, because it doesn't. What it does, it just shows the one who loves me that I love him. That I love him. And that as he loved me, I want to show that love to love others. So you have to pray for that faith to increase, to abound more and more, exceedingly, over the top, cup running over, because as the faith increases with God, 
our love will increase. We'll love others, especially, and Brian's talking about how do we love those who wrong us or wrong the ones that we think, you know, like, I can maybe take the hit for myself, but somebody wrongs somebody that I care about, like my kid or something, sometimes for me that's harder. Okay, and you see people, like when I look at people who are downtrodden, see people who've done wrong, like around the world, who've been like taken advantage of, that irks me. And my fleshly nature wants to punish. Let me set the record straight. But the Lord says, vengeance is mine. It's not my place to do that. And it's not only, it's, it's different when you're a believer. It's not even, it's not my place to do that. It is my place to pray for them, to pray blessing for them. Whoa. To pray blessing for somebody who spites me, who spites, who does wrong. To pray blessing on somebody who's a murderer or who, who, or who abuses a child. Whoa. But that's what Jesus did for us. And to be like him, that's what he wants of us. So when we talk about that in the midst of trial, all the things he's talking about, that faith that's a living faith, is allowing those trials to make us more like Jesus, having our faith increase and becoming more and more like him. And the thing to appreciate that is in the midst of that trial, we are not alone. God knows, and he's always there. Just as he was there with Daniel's friends, right? Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We use their Babylonian names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But he was there with them. He loved them. And he was there in the midst of the fire with them. And they weren't burned. So if you don't have Jesus, you'll be burned in the fire. When you do, you'll be able to weather that in every other storm that comes. Okay, every storm that comes. And that's what's going to happen. There is a coming storm. But God will give an account and he'll help us that. So what's a vital church look like? What's a vital faith looks like? Or a vital uh, individual who's walking with the Lord? He has a strong faith. I just read this. It's a mark of an advancing Christian that grows sure of Jesus Christ every day. James Agate said, my mind is not like a bed which has to be made and remade. It's settled. We need to be settled. Settled on our faith, not questioning. I mean, I'm not saying you, it's not, it's okay to have some doubts. But you can't live with it day to day, in and out, in and out, in and out. You have to settle, God's good even when I don't see it. I'm going to believe it. I'm going to act in faith in that. And that's the thing that the Lord's asking us to do. Okay? There are some things of which I'm absolutely sure. Another part of that is the love that we have has to be increasing. It can't stay at the same level. We have to increase our love. We want to see people come into the kingdom. We have to have a love that's supernatural beyond of what we normally would do. And we need Jesus to do that. We have to have an increasing love for the Lord and for others. 
So that love shows up in greater service. We're going to want to serve. We're going to want to bless others. Um, they use this analogy of the sequoia trees. If you're familiar with them, they're the redwoods out in California, but also in Oregon, uh, Washington State, and in southern British Columbia, Canada. And these trees are huge, 300 feet plus. Okay, there's one, I think, general sermon that's the biggest tree on the planet. Okay, and the reason I say that is they have very shallow roots, but they spread out wide to capture all the moisture. But you don't see these sequoias by themselves. Okay, because if they were, one big wind would take them out. These roots intermingle with all the other sequoias there. There are always so many of them. They're in a forest. Okay, and by being interconnected, guess what? They can withstand the storm. So the body of believers that we're in, this Lone Ranger Christian idea that somehow we think is okay in Western Christianity is not biblical. We need each other. We do, whether we feel it or not, whether we're comfortable or not, okay? We need the affirmation of the body together to help each other to weather storms. One person, depending on the wind, takes the hit more than the other ones help along to help stabilize and make sure that they don't get uprooted. Okay, and then you do the same. The consolation, okay? God does not waste our trials. He doesn't waste our sorrows. He collects every one of our tears. He knows what we're going through. Jesus went through all of it. And he wants to help us to go through the next trials that we have. Because he loves us that much. Because that's his very nature. And he wants us to be like him. So he's going to make us go through a lot of the same stuff. And that trial is to make us more and more like Jesus. To take us away out of the cares of the world. And to have a supernatural love for others. To show that love for others beyond our comprehension. And so the last part of that three, so I mentioned about a faith, okay, that's increasing, that abounds more and more, a love that increases, and the last part of that is endurance, perseverance. Okay, we've talked about that here before. The Greek word for that is kupamone, okay, okay, which is, means we can just take the hits. It means when they slack you on one, you can turn the other cheek. That we're not fragile. We're not snowflakes. We don't react. Okay? We decide we are going to take whatever's coming at, not because we're worthy, but because of what Christ did. And I want to be like Jesus. And I want to bless those who persecute us. Because we will be persecuted. If you're not persecuted, you may not be doing things the right way. Okay, if you're not getting flack from where things are, you may not be. I'm not saying you need to be jerks and think just because you're a jerk and somebody doesn't like you that, oh, you're being persecuted. Some people think that. That's not what I'm communicating. If you're showing the love of Jesus, your love's abounding and you're talking about the goodness of God and somebody has a problem with that, that would be a form of that. If you're sharing the message and you're being persecuted, that's what they're talking about. These literally, um, they're, they're meeting, you know, two or three together. That's all they can do is church in these Muslim countries. They can't, that's all they can have because they can't have a structure. Because their own families will beat them, kill them. Kill them for the faith. And that's not getting easier, it's not getting better, it's getting harder. 
it's getting harder. Okay? Conversions are, you know, before we can think, oh, man's understanding, we just need to get the message out there, more mission trips, and people will come to the Lord. Don't you believe it? Don't you believe it? It's not going to happen. No program is going to make the results you think. Nothing lasting. Okay? Because it's not man's ingenuity and understanding. It's not even about throwing more money. It's about the Spirit of God because it's the Holy Spirit that does the conversion and we're just being obedient to where the Spirit moves and just going in the fields he directs us to go to harvest at the time's right. He's already planted it. He's already doing it. We just have to go to harvest it. Okay, we can do other things. I'm not saying we don't have responsibility to engage and participate. I am saying it's the Holy Spirit that does the work and we have to be sensitive that what it's going to take now is much more power of the Holy Spirit than it is in us. Okay, and that's what's going to happen. It's going to need that. So moving on to verses 8 to 10. In flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God. And, and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired, admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. <coughs> So flaming fire, there's two other places I want to show you where that's talked about. In Revelation 1.14, when John, the revelation of John, not revelations, David, thank you for correcting me, but the revelation, to, he says, his head, this is Revelation 1.14, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. And then in 2 Peter 3, 11 and 12, Therefore, since all of these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the God, because of which the heavens shall be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. So many of you know, you know, the whole world was destroyed except for eight in flood in Noah's time, but that the end of this creation will be in fire. Jesus will come in fire. He is the line of Judah, and there will be fire. And, and it will burn. That's why that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego analogy is really good, because there will be a fire. It'll be a super hot fire. And only those with Jesus can persevere. Now, he's going to talk, and we'll talk a little bit more in terms of the great tribulation and the suffering of God, there's different beliefs about it, but I think most tend to believe that believers will not suffer the great tribulation. We will suffer. We will suffer the trials of the Antichrist, but not the wrath of God. We'll be protected from that, and that's what he's talking about. So it says here, I like what it says at the beginning, right? They will be punished with everlasting destruction. But the point is right after that. It says, from the presence of the Lord. When somebody, when I asked the pastor friend of mine, Steve Tompkins, he was a friend, he was a pastor, I wasn't a believer. I asked him about hell, and he told me, hell is being forever separated from God. 
And he could not imagine anything worse than that. And that's what he's talking about. God is sustaining this creation. He is a God of peace. Any peace that this world has, he has, you know, that prevenient grace. He gives, us, he gives the, the rain and the sun on the just and the unjust. He is sustaining the world. He is making the good that we see, the beauty that we see in nature, is by God's grace. Not just what he did at the beginning, but his sustaining grace that he's doing right now. When he withdraws that, it is hell. It is hell. So he doesn't have to do anything actively in the sense of hammering on that part. He just has to withdraw his grace, his favor. Nothing good can survive apart that because the good that's around is because of God. The good that's here that we see, even with the, those who are the unjust, even in us before the good that we have is because of God. All the good that exists is because of God. When he withdraws his good, what remains? That's what they're talking about. And the other part of that is he is God and he's good. And he goes, I've extended favor upon favor. I've given you chance upon chance to trust in my goodness. And you've just spat in my face. Okay, you don't want me. Then I shall leave. C.S. Lewis described hell as being locked from the inside. People choose that. People spite God because they don't want to surrender their will and their pride. I didn't. I wanted my own way. I don't want somebody to tell me what to do. I don't want a rule book to tell me what I can or can't do. I want freedom. But it's just bondage. They have no peace. And so there is account. God will look at that and he'll keep an account of that. I don't know exactly how that's all going to work out in the specifics and the details. I know God's perfect. Perfectly good. And the way that he'll do it will be the best way possible. And we won't understand it now. But we will when we in heaven. And we'll go, oh yeah. You ever been that? Like you go, oh yeah. Of course, that's the only way it could have been done. All that will be revealed. And we'll look back and see how perfect he was in every handling he had in our lives. Even when we were frustrated. And the reason why there was trouble was not because God didn't give favor. is because we were like little kids. And you've seen them. I mean, I love JJ and he's around here, but I mean, that thing, you know, he just does his own thing. Runs around, does what he wants to do. Little kids do that, like two-year-olds, okay? And there's consequences because of that. And they fall and hurt themselves and they go, we told, don't run. But then they ran and they hit themselves. Don't touch, that's hot. But they touch it and they get burned. That's us. God's telling us to protect us and we don't listen. Okay, he's doing it because he loves us. The perfect father. The perfect father. And the question is, will we believe? Will we trust? And in the accounts with the unbelievers or those who don't, he will also be perfect with them. He does not wish any should perish. And so the last part that he says in that, 
that part that I want to emphasize, where he says, so that your testimony will be believed. Among you is believed. And so we each have a testimony. God's going to look at that. When we talk about when we were before him, and he said, I gave you all this. What did you do with it? What he's talking about is what do we do to build the kingdom? What do we do, the love that he extended to us, that we showed that love to others? Which is our testimony. Which is the stuff that we talk about that we can't help but talk about. That we can't say, God's that good. Let me show you how good he is. He loved me. He loves you. He loves you, Hamas. He loves you, Vladimir Putin. He loves you, Adolf Hitler. That's a hard one for me, but yeah. He loves all Paul Pot, you know, Mao Zedong, every leader that's there, the current Chinese, Jiang Jimin. So, yes, that's the perfect God that he is. Moving to the last couple of verses, Second Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that basically summarized what I've just shared. Okay, it summarized everything that I've just shared about. Okay, he says that you be count worthy of the calling. The only way that we have worth is talking about what he did for others and being obedient to what he called to us. That we abound in our love. Our faith increases. Our love abounds more and we persevere. We stick through it, even when we don't feel like it. And we show others the goodness of God, especially when things aren't going well. And I'm not saying suffer miserably. Oh yeah, I'm doing a lot for the Lord. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay? I'm saying love. God's good. Because he is. Because he died on the cross for my sins. If he did nothing else, that was enough. If he did nothing else, that was enough. Everything else is just gravy. Just bonus. Just bonus. So I'm grateful for what he did. And he did nothing else. And I'm going to trust in him and I'm going to be obedient to what he tells me to. And God, and I love what he says here again, right? He says, the, the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. So it is a work of faith. I'm going to act, but I'm going to do it with power. And the only way we get power is with the Holy Spirit. That means being filled with the Spirit. That's what that means. With power means being filled with the Spirit. Surrendered to a Spirit working in you. Not in your own reasoning and understanding. Not in the natural reasoning mind, which I am so prone to do. But on the faith of God and the power of the Holy Spirit transforming. So when you have that, when he talks about earlier in Luke, he says, I will give you the words that you'll need to say. You don't have to worry. At the right time, you'll say exactly the words they need to hear. Because you're just saying, just use me. I just want to be the electrical cord. Okay? Okay, we just have to plug into the outlet, the power source, you know, the electrical cord. Do what you want to do. Not even the toaster, just the cord. 
Okay? And that's what it means. I'm going to be the conduit for you to have your power to have your way. Okay? And maybe glorifying you. And when you have that, when his power, the neat thing is, when his power is going through us, we are transformed. We are changed. We are made more like Christ. And it just gets better and better and better. And more goes through. So the way the brain works, if you're into that, the more you have pathways go and you develop certain things, the, the axons or the dendrites, you actually get more, better pathways. So learning is good. Continuing to learn, spending time in the Word, but learning as a whole, learning new languages, learning things, is a good, good thing. Okay? Now, what we learn, we have to make sure that it's something that glorifies God. But the principle of learning is good in the idea. And what we need, God wants, is he created that in us that we may understand him more. He's, as I've shared, extra-dimensional being. He's given us a pathway to understand him in his word, which is an extra-dimensional document because it has the spirit guiding it. It works beyond our understanding. We can't figure it in our own intellect. We have to ask him to help us, and we have to be connected to him through his spirit so that his life goes through us and that we are a blessing to others. Building his kingdom, and that's what he talks about. And then if we get persecuted and we still do it, the blessings are even more. The blessings are even more, both here and especially in heaven. Are we willing to step for that? And that's where the faith, you have to ask God, even with the faith, I need help, God. Help my faith. I believe, help my unbelief. So that's what he wants. Okay, and so we're going to talk next week about the next chapter, but the, the take-home message from this is God absolutely loves you, and he wants the very best for you and everybody that you see. And if we get that and see others the way that he does, then we'll naturally want to be in sync in the groove with the Lord to see him when he's moving to be that blessing. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we're grateful for you being such an amazing God. Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you that you never give up on us. Thank you that you choose to work through us crack pots. When I think of crack pots, I think you pour water and it just pours out and we can't even hold any water. And it seems like you have to keep pouring it. That's what you want. You want us to keep getting more and more water. And even though it's leaking out, we keep going for more. Keep going for more. And Holy Spirit, we just pray that you will just fill each man up, that your life light may shine through, and that you get glorified, Lord, and your glory shines through in them for the blessing of others to build your kingdom because, Jesus, you deserve it all. In your name, amen.